Walter Balper and the team of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his first appearance in five years. Some brief research reveals it's his first solo appearance. His first solo appearance on the program in five years. He's editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus, as well as co-author with Ben Lindbergh of the book The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. It is Sam Miller. Sam Miller is the guest. And with a view to expediting this introduction, getting the listener from point A, which is the beginning of the introduction, to point B, which is the end of the introduction and the beginning of my conversation with Sam Miller, I will not belabor a summary, which is what I sometimes do, is belabor a summary, except to say that Sam Miller is is a delight, that he's a dear man, that he is warm, mostly those things. Sam Miller is mostly those things. I ask him in particular about the, if you've read the book, the kangaroo court scene in which coach Faye, Phelan Lentini, boots Miller from the clubhouse before the kangaroo court takes place. Is Sam a coward? No, but he's forced to slink away. Slink. We talk about slinking away is another topic we discuss. Anyway, uh, is there a sponsor's message? No, there's not. Not right now. If there were, it would be for SeatGeek and SeatGeek.com, but there's not a sponsor's message. So what we do is we get immediately to the conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Gentleman Sam Miller. And when does it begin? Right now. Yes, I did. Uh, I could hear your house the whole time. Uh-huh. Okay. You're right. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. So I see what your point is. Yes. If Ben Lindbergh, uh, if he wanted essentially, if he knew that you were want to um, leave your Zencaster window open, he could essentially, um, he could monitor you at all times. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, again, given what I know of Ben Lindbergh, he's inclined to do that sort of thing. What? Yep. What? Um, what? So the genesis of this conversation is an interesting one, and in, insofar as I think it represents, and I want I want you to know I want you to know before I say any words that I that I love you. Yeah. Is that is that fair? Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. You're you're comfortable with it. I'm so I'm just a, I'm I'm thrilled to hear it. I okay. I've heard it before, of course, but have I said that to you before? Uh, or about you behind your back or from other people you've heard. Of. I would say I, you've lived it. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I love you. Uh, this is one of the rare instances. And again, I totally invite this. Um, and this is one of the rare instances in which the guest has, has, uh, told me when we would be, po- we would be podcasting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I was, um, I, yeah, well, we, you know, when we started, uh, when Ben Lindbergh and I started our little podcast, uh, we, did a couple of co- of uh of simulcasts with you. Yeah. And I enjoyed that. But also my very first ever podcast experience was uh was on your was on your show uh, way back in 2000 uh, uh I don't know 12 uh yeah summer of summer 2012. Okay. Yeah, guess. and I'll be honest, I don't uh, I actually don't recall that. Uh, you tried to talk me out of uh, wanting to write a book at the time. Oh, yeah. And, uh, it was, it was a great time, but, uh, I also, I also love you. I, I'm just a huge admirer of you. Is it possible uh, you were on twice? I think I was, yeah. Is that true? I think so. Well, this is, we, we, oh, this is great. I'm glad that we've talked so much. Yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, but we haven't caught up in a long time and, um, we talk, sometimes we will, uh, sometimes we'll talk about each other, but we haven't really caught up and there's not really a good, so I met you at the, at, uh, the Sabre conference in Long Beach in 2012. And I think it's actually, I'm going to, I'm going to just check you a little bit. It's 2011, I believe. Oh yeah, you're right. Trout. Five years. We're looking yeah, right. at a five year anniversary right here. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. And it was the day that we, we went to a baseball game that Mike Trout was making his major league debut in. Uh, and we went to a conference and watched, um, we went, we went to the, well, we went to a number of uh, events within that conference together. Um, and it was just delightful. I mean, you, it was the, the, the first time I, uh, had ever really gone out in public as a baseball writer and I was a little bit nervous. And to, uh, meet you, to sit next to you and meet you and to then, uh, just be smitten by what a wonderful friend you were, yeah. uh, was great. And then, um, 
we've really never had a, a occasion to interact since no. then. Uh, you're fairly, yeah, I would say that you're not very outward facing in your, uh, baseball writing career, uh, to the extent that you were five years ago anymore. You do more editing and more, uh, living life, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, and, uh, so we've never, we, you know, we, we've never seen each other since, uh, we, uh, rarely get a chance to speak. And I heard you were saying uh, nice things about me at one point on your podcast uh, fairly recently. Um, and I thought that while it might be, um, it might be particularly, um, forward to invite oneself on another person's podcast in any circumstance, all the more so considering I actually have a podcast. So the world, you know, is already forced to listen to me a lot. And yet I thought that, uh, it would be worth it for, uh, I think it's to great connect with you. It's, I am not here. I just want to make it clear. I am not here. Uh, to plug anything or because I'm interested in. So the book well, is, the only rule is it has to work. Yeah, I, I don't, I, I have no agenda. I have no, uh, no, no new material that I'm workshopping or anything like that. I really just needed an excuse to, uh, be on the phone with you. And I oh, think it would have yeah. been, it would have been more, um, given, given that we haven't done that, but we have had podcasts before. I felt like it, it would be more awkward. To simply call you on the phone and talk. Plus, adults what, don't do that very often. Plus, nobody does that anymore. When's the last time you had a phone call? You know, I actually did that with another person who fills a similar place in my life as you, which is someone I know through baseball. So, actually, someone I met at a saber convention, and who I regard as a uh, kindred spirit, and that is David Temple. Mm-hmm. I did uh, maybe three months ago now. I just I called David Temple because I realized I recognized that uh, he, he he at one point was editing tech graphs at Fan, Fangraphs, um, but I think that he was also t- attempting to conduct a, a a professional life alongside that, and uh, he like many of us was overwhelmed. Um, I'm not I, I shouldn't be putting words in his mouth, but my point is that it was a lot of work for him, and I think he also wanted to have some leisure time. I know he's married and he loves his wife, which is not true of everyone who's married. Um, and, and beyond that, he wanted to spend time with her. So it was really a trifecta yeah. of um, of affection. And um, so what happened was, uh, I think he stopped doing it, but uh, um, I, I wanted to call him. So I did call him. I did call him and it was I recognized it was awkward, but I think I might have had a couple of drinks already. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, not feeling as much shame as I normally would. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah typically consumed by it. Uh, no, but I think it's hard. And, uh, well, of course, one of the reasons why uh, the one of the advantages of sport is that as a, as a heterosexual male who's not entirely at ease with himself, you can invite another heterosexual male to watch a game with you and it acts as a wonderful pretense upon which to have a conversation. Yeah, I, and I- – you can invite anybody to watch a game with you, but particularly there, you're saying that there is a social awkwardness in having the uh, heterosexual male uh, uh, interaction, and it, yeah. it works as a, a sort of convenient um, uh, buffer between you and your feelings. Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's just right. It's difficult. I know it's difficult for me uh, uh, to uh, to to say to just say out of the blue, you know, would you like to get coffee or something like that. I, well, maybe I've been rebuffed sometimes. Yeah. I, I feel like I might have uh, said this back when I was on for the very first time. But Larry uh, Granillo, I think we might have debated whether it was Granillo or Granillo. And I think then you said you made you, – you created a character who says Larry Granillo in a very flamboyant way. Like, Larry Granillo! Like that. Like, I bet if you go back and listen, there's something like that where you are – Toying with different levels of enthusiasm for pronouncing his surname, but, but Grineo, yeah, okay. Let's, I say Grineo. So I'm willing to say Grineo. So he, uh, I also met him at the conference, and and when he and I were talking, he said that there's a very, uh, it's it's great to go to these conferences to meet people that you know, to meet people that you um, maybe already knew but not in person, and you leave feeling great, and then there is a sort of a, an emotional crash some weeks or months later when you start thinking. Uh, did wait? Did that guy really like me? Like, were we? Did, you you start to doubt that you guys are friends, and then it becomes sort of uh, a little bit more awkward. Uh, you don't want to presume too much 
Um, and you have to every once in a while just sort of re-up your affection for each other. And, uh, and, uh, so I, I would say that that probably comes into play a little bit. Well, what I want to say is, so this is, this is one of the things I like about you is because I think that you, you're, you're, you're tall from what I remember. So I would say six, two, six, three. Oh no, six, six, one, six, one, but, but, uh, but you feel, you feel six, three, uh, spindly, (laughs) but, um, so you're not a, you're not a small person, but, um, I have no, I know some things about you. I know both about, uh, both by reading this book about you, um, or that by you and about you simultaneously about your experience. I know that, um, I know that, and this is where I was able to insert myself into the book. Do you know that's important, right? <laughs> when any, uh, any work of art, work of fiction, work of nonfiction, um, it's, I think it's incumbent, right? Upon, or it's necessary for the, for the readers to be able to say, where am I here? Right? What, how does yeah. this, um, how does this, how is this helping me? Yeah. And I, I, uh, derived quite a bit from your conduct, uh, working with the Sonoma Stompers because I think that whatever your intentions and ambitions before you showed up in, in that area and were attempting to cobble together a team, et cetera, I think that once you, once this, like, for example, once it was all going on, the season was underway, you seem to exhibit quite a reluctance to change anything. Uh, whereas I think that your friend and, co- and co-writer, Ben Lindbergh, was like, we're here to, this is, we only yeah. get one season. We need to try some of these things. And it's certainly for the first half, you seem to be reluctant to, to embark upon those changes. Yeah, I was. Uh, and, and I, I, it probably to some degree plays as cowardice. And maybe there is an aspect of it, uh, but I really did feel um, a preemptive sort of guilt uh, about uh, about disrupting these really fine people's lives. Um, like they were doing this before we ever got here, you know. And I so part of it was that I I felt like we could help them, that we had the potential to really assist them and and. We, you know, we, I think we did for some people, but, um, I also didn't want to just sort of stomp in and, and by the way, neither did I, I don't unintended? want unintended, unintended, no unintended. Okay. Uh, do you think, wait, you wait, wait, though, 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 pun, it, that's interesting because you, I, res- I responded to that with an, an also unintentional uh, sort of almost pun, like a rhyme pun. Did you catch that? But pun intended. And I said unintended. <laughs> it's like the same thing, but with one letter off. Yeah, one. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and to be clear, Ben also didn't. Uh, ben didn't want to be disruptive either. Ben was much more, uh, I think, of the belief that uh, that we had something to add, and that we were there not by. Like, I, we were. Ben's feeling was not that we were there because we had a book deal and were able to convince um, somebody to let us screw around. But we were there because, you know, we're good. Like, we're smart. We had the tech. Uh, we were putting a lot of effort into it. And, and Ben is right. We, um, we, I think, had earned the authority. Uh, and I did not yet feel that way. And so that's right. probably that's, the, yes. the aspect and of it, cowardice that I had. So you also referred, you referred, uh, in this conversation, I think others, you referred to your program with Ben Lindbergh as your little podcast. Mm-hmm. You add the diminutive to it and um and this is this is what i'm pointing i don't regard it as cowardice i think that what you're saying is you here's what i think i think you would be a (laughs) conquistador does that make sense (laughs) i think you'd be a really i think you would show up and you'd be like hey guys actually like these native people like they see they already seem to have something going on like why i don't think we should get involved uh-huh. And then, and then, like your colleagues would be like, "But well, we are from the King of Spain. We have to, you know how they, you know how they talk. Yeah, <laughs> you know how they talk. Yeah, they're like we have to we do they we have to go because of God says we have to do it. And then you're like, eh, I just not feeling it. So what we, what would I be good at, Carson? I think you're good at being a a, a person, a, a sensitive person who hears people. That's what I'm trying to say. I I like the I this is the thing I like. Uh, you familiar with comedian Pat Oswalt? Sure. 
Sure. And comedian Pat Oswalt says, uh, no, I want to make it clear. I'm not a devotee of Pat Oswalt. I think he's got good work, bad work. That's how I feel about most people. Um, but I, he said something that resonated quite loudly with me, which was he said that <clears throat> he never wanted, uh, he never, fe- he was never the sort of person to go to a party to which he was not invited. And um, I think it, at a, I think he actually might have been discussing rather a serious topic uh, at that point, which was sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, jeez. Yeah, sorry, uh, but my point I, is that yeah, that's why he was never inclined in that direction. He was never inclined to to take it from a lady to take what what he was his because he never he never liked the idea of going to a party, which is right. If someone can was, I, it's a, can I just I don't like this joke. I don't like that joke. I haven't heard it's it. Not, it's, not, it's not a joke. This is not a joke. Yeah. But he was having a serious discussion. All right. He was saying that he was never inclined that direction. He didn't understand it because he never wanted to go to a, the sort of party to which he was uninvited. And, that, and that I don't think he's saying a joke. I think this is – I feel this very strongly is <clears throat> there are forces that push you in certain directions and push you away from others, right? And you can't be a sort of person who goes out there – well, I suppose you can be – who just uh, – who says – whose mentality is to take – to take, right? To exhibit ambition. My guess is that um, you're, a, you're a person who has – well, how did, how did how do you uh, feel about the word, the concept of ambition and in particular how it plays in your life? Um, hmm. I, uh, I'm about to cough. Hang on. <clears throat> All right. I, uh, boy, I don't know how to answer that in a way that would be interesting to anybody else, including well, you. Well, no, no, no. I think here's why, here's why it would be interesting to anyone else because, uh, we're not, uh, none of us are that different, Sam. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and uh, I will. Here's another quote it's from my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Terry. Um, uh, I told her that my friend Rob Carroll had moved up to the fifth grade spelling book, and I was still in the fourth grade spelling book. But I regarded myself every bit as intelligent as Rob. And I said, Miss Terry, I would like to go up to the fifth grade spelling book. And she said, Well, uh, and I said, You know, Rob's there. And she said, Well, Rob is special. Mm. Yeah. And so I learned then and have continued to learn in a number of different ways that I, how, that I'm not special. I, right. Yeah. I think it's instructive. And so I would say that whatever you're about to say is going to be relevant to someone if only because they're like, no, that's exact. I'm the exact opposite. Um, I thought that you were telling the, uh, Rob spelling bee story because it was a commentary on ambition, but it was actually a commentary on, uh, our universal. It was really just a, it was really just, wordplay it was it was a commentary on the universality of human experience but then you offered an example that isn't even about the universality and universality universal well i told you why yes you just you it basically the punchline was just that the word special was involved all right uh i here's my feeling on ambition carson i would say that i have personal ambitions uh and i uh i keep them very secret i'm very uncomfortable with having uh, with, with ha- anybody knowing my ambitions or really with them being, uh, even approached or, uh, pursued in, uh, view of anybody else because I don't want to be seen to come up short and I also don't want the pressure of chasing them. I like to have a little secret ambition that I, uh, then pursue secretly and then at the end of it I say, ta-da, um, <laughs> or, or quit 10% of the way in. Uh, and, and hate, and you know, and hate myself for it, but without the burden of, of uh, feeling like other people also hate me for it. I have a, I have a list which I am uh, going to uh, tell you the existence of, but I will uh, not give you any uh, details on it. But I have a list of the, well, I, you know, you know that I was a news reporter at the Orange County Register before. Yeah, I, I think ever you did. You baseball. were, you reported on autism. You did what a sort of a, lo- a long running coverage of autism in the uh i did for about a year autism was my beat uh i also covered education and i uh, was a feature writer and i also covered uh, local government at a point of in two small towns and so during this time i had um opportunity to pursue many articles i would write about um i don't know 150 a year uh but many would die uh many articles uh, i would get some way down the line 
and then they would they would um, you know they would either reveal themselves to not be that interesting, or my uh, my access to the information I needed would dry up, or I would change beats and they would be incomplete, or an editor would tell me it's not that interesting. But uh, I had a number of these articles that I got I spent a lot of time on, uh, and that I cared greatly for, and that I thought were important, and that I even took up a lot of sources. Um, time and, and energy on and gave those sources sort of hope that this article would be written. But because I was a disorganized person who uh, was uh, procrastinating a lot, getting distracted a lot, losing things, uh, and <laughs> also sometimes just not doing any work, uh, rather uh, I preferred to uh, click refresh on Yahoo box scores to see if any of my fantasy baseball players were excelling. Uh, these articles just died. And I have a list of uh, the 10-ish articles that I most regret, and I look at those with just utter shame uh, because in some cases, uh, these were articles that really deserved to be written uh, and in which, like I said, the, the people who I had spoke to, um, they were not speaking to me for no reason. They They wanted – they felt hope that the newspaper, this big newspaper, which everybody wants the big newspaper to write about – their issue, this big newspaper was going to write about them. And because I keep my ambitions secret, I never told anybody that I was working on these things. I never had an, I never told an editor, you know, here's the one I'm writing about the, um, you know, the, uh, IEP at this school and how the principals have been violating, uh, you know, the, uh, uh internationals with this, uh, the, uh, sorry, the, uh, individuals with disabilities education act. And like, that was a really important story. I never told my, my editor, I was working on it. Instead, I just sort of did a bunch of work on it and then stopped doing any work on it, and it never got written. And if I had told my editors, they would have kept on sort of pushing me and uh, uh, sort of keeping me interested and helping me carve out time to work on it, chip away at it. But because I was uh, I was terrified of giving them anything but a complete uh, draft because I didn't want it to fail and I didn't want to be seen as failing in their eyes. Uh, it just died. And so that is a long way of answering your question about how I feel about ambition. You want to protect, you want to protect it. Well, so here's the thing. As soon as, as soon as a, a third party catches wind of it, yeah, then, then you, then it's not merely yourself who's holding you to it. Yeah. It's someone else. That's the problem. Yeah. I think that's yeah. well. Yeah, that's the problem. That's also the the good thing. If you if if someone says uh, you should read this, you should read this novel. Yeah. Or you happen to find yourself interested in reading a certain novel. Um, are you the sort of person who can abandon it, or who who will abandon it if you do not care for it, or will you read it to the end? I would abandon it. Yeah, I'm happy to abandon. Okay. Something like that. I'm curious about that. I think that that might be. Uh, I don't know if that is worthy of going on a Myers-Briggs uh, personality test, but it may be a, a lower-level personality test, that particular question. I, I, I've come across people who uh, feel uncomfortable abandoning a novel once they've started. Hmm. I don't. I um, I, I actually love abandoning novels. If the, it, To me, it feels great to uh, realize that you are saving yourself uh, 13 hours of reading yeah. on something you don't like. How about this? Have you ever watched, and um, or do you, do you continue to watch videos on YouTube, for example, of some of just a person, and they like have like a box of shells in front of them, and they just kind of they just pick up the shells. It's everything else is quiet. They just pick up the shells, and you just hear the sound of the shells um, lightly clacking against each other. Or, the, or maybe another type of video where people just whisper. They just whisper. Yeah, I'm aware of them. I don't consume yeah. them. Okay. That's another question from a a, a um, subpar personality test that I'm <laughs> spontaneously creating. <laughs> yeah. All right. And I guess you. I don't know what. I don't know what it says about you, but you're not. In neither case. Uh, <clears throat> um, it seems like it's from a different personality test. You mean a totally different one? Yeah, it feels like you switched personality tests. No, no, this is uh, we've got to run the gamut. So, well, of course, and some of the questions are uh, 
red herrings. I almost said white <laughs> herrings. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them were white herrings because I got them confused with types of sumac. There's red sumac and white sumac. Yeah. But there's only really red herrings. There might be white herring too. I don't know, but it's not as popular, at least metaphorically. Um, I wrote you, I wrote to you an email while I was reading uh, your book, uh, cause I was, I actually, I just read the email again. I didn't even know, cause it was what, a couple months ago now. I didn't even know what I was meaning, what I meant. But it, it said something about, I said, I just read the kangaroo court scene. Oh, yeah. In, in your book, and f- you call them Faye a lot. Is that how you say, what do you, how do you say this man's name? Faye. Well, his, uh, his name is Faylant, and, uh, we called him Faye. Uh, Faylant Lantini? Faylant Lantini. We found out later that some teammates from previous teams called him Lant. And we wondered how different our relationship would have been if instead of being Faye, he'd been Lant to us. Did other people call him Faye? Everybody called him Faye. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody everybody on our team, everybody in Sonoma called him Faye. Okay. um, There was a suit. Can you uh, just briefly remind me and pre- uh, perhaps the listeners to the, what I mean by the kangaroo court scene? Because I don't recall. Um, so the premise of this book is that Ben Lindbergh and I uh, are running the baseball operations department of a independent minor league baseball team in Sonoma, California. And uh, so we are – the- the, Are those the exact words you said uh, when you were talking with Terry Gross? We didn't get Terry Gross. Uh, Passon got Terry Gross. Oh, Passon. That's right. Who did you get? Uh, not Terry Gross. We got you. Uh-huh. We're, we got you right now. <laughs> That's right. Jeff Fasten is uh, also on and recently also wrote a book. You didn't get Terry Gross? We didn't get Terry Gross. We, uh, I mean, we, uh, we were, we, we got a lot of fun publicity. Uh, I got to write in the New York Times. So that was quite a, a thrill. Uh, oh yeah. I think I, think, I read that. I think Passen also got that. As I yeah, we got uh, well, we got we got a, a New York Times book review uh, right alongside Passon. Uh, we <laughs> we uh, we were in the Harvard Business Review, yeah. and that was a that was a pretty good one. And where that, was Passon there? Not right there. He wasn't there. Yeah, I've been reading so, ever since, waiting. Nope. Did you not unlike um, like a like a grandparent or older aunt? Did you did you photocopy the article from the Harvard Business Review and send it to Passon? But then, <laughs> unlike unlike a kindly older aunt, you scribbled um, and attached a piece uh, attached to it a piece of paper that said, "Step up your game, Passon." No, ours his was not a business book in the same way that ours was uh, to some degree uh, easy to read as a business book. Uh, or not a business book, but a management book, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, he also got excerpted in Sports Illustrated, which just, like, you're not going to win. You're not going to win the dozens against a guy <laughs> who was SI'd. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so, um, so it's. Yeah, we know the premise of the book, Sam. All right. So at uh, some point, there was a kangaroo court as there always is on a rainy day when I think that maybe the game had been rained out or perhaps we were in a slump or something. Somebody said, all right, now's the time for kangaroo court. Uh, and uh, I very excitedly said, great, I'm going to kangaroo court. And I went and I sat in the back of the clubhouse. Uh, and I, we were, uh, Ben and I were front office people who also sat in the dugout. So we were in a little bit of a... Um, of a both worlds kind of role where we could uh, be the front office, but we could also be the, you know, on field staff, I guess, in a sense. Uh, and we, of course, um, you know, we, we knew the players extremely well by this point. We were uh, socializing with them when it was appropriate. We were um, at spring training when they were at spring training, we were picking them up from the airport. We were signing them and uh, talking to them and learning about them and, and so on. And so, uh, I was excited to see what kangaroo court was like. And, uh, when I went in and sat down, uh, the manager saw me in the back and, uh, and kicked me out. And I thought he was joking because he had at uh, one time earlier in the year, uh, pretended to kick me out of the clubhouse and then, uh, said, no, I'm just kidding. Obviously you, you should be in here. Uh, and around that time, a, a, a assistant GM, the, the sort of the guy who was in charge of business for the team, uh, told me uh, what he he said it in a very profound way, and I 
debated whether it was profound or 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 not. But in retrospect, I think it was profound. He, he told me uh, when Faye is joking, he's never joking, and I think he probably wasn't joking the first time either. But he didn't uh, he didn't follow up on that uh, instance. This time he followed up, uh, and I uh, stayed in the clubhouse for about a minute, and then he said again, I had to to get out. No no stat heads in the clubhouse. I think he said. Or, no front, maybe he said no front office guys in the clubhouse, something like that. Uh, and uh, while I felt like I had the support of much of the team, I did not have the support of all of the team. And I uh, realized that I had to slink away. And it was the pro- it was probably the worst moment of the season for me mm-hmm. um, because uh, I had been, uh, you know, like it, I mean, it was easily the most comparable moment to every day of eighth grade. Right. <laughs> the there's always it was always I never really well I, I I shouldn't say I never did I went in uh, with um, some unresolved issues of having been uh, uh, you know not cool enough to hang out with the good baseball players in high school and middle school and elementary yeah. school um, I played baseball with them but I was worse at baseball than them and also not cool like them. And so there, there was a little bit of that baggage and, uh, that's what had me nervous going into the season more than, you know, almost anything else. And that, uh, more or less resolved itself as the season went on and I got to know the players very well. Uh, I still felt, I still felt that a little bit when I would be, like if I had to walk through the, past the visiting teams dugout, I would still feel like, oh, I'm walking past the cool kids. Uh, but with our own team, I never really felt that by the end of the year. However, uh, in this moment, it was made extremely clear that I should feel that way. Uh, and I uh, was very embarrassed, steaming mad. And I had all the same sort of um, uh, feelings of desiring, uh, I don't know, revenge or something. Not revenge, but I, like I, I don't know. You came like, up with a really, like, really like, strong comeback at like – a half hour later. I was, well, yeah, I was like, I'm going to write a book about this. That's what I'm going to know. But no, actually, when I was a kid, um, I would respond to things like that with, I would go home and do push-ups. Like I would, uh-huh. I, yeah, I was skinny and small. And so if I was ever embarrassed by the cool kids, I would go home and I'd be like, all right, today's the day. I am doing push-ups. And I would like eat a bunch of things with protein and I'd just wait to, to grow. I just was like gonna grow now uh and uh it never worked and it never lasted um and uh, i sort of felt that like i i went outside and i felt that sort of pavlovian desire to uh get strong that's what it was i like i I went outside and i was like i wanted to get strong like i felt like this physical uh adrenaline in me that was like do push-ups but i did not do push-ups i just walked around and then came back and heard them laughing from inside and have a good time yeah well so that's that's one of the that's one of the so the thing that made that seem difficult yes you were you were you were embarrassed you were <laughs> i'm not saying so i guess what how, um, how do i mean the adjective you were I had been you, in your head in your head you were embarrassed and you were also and that's like the what the like um yeah the tra- the intransitive version of it the yeah. the transitive version is you were embarrassed by him yeah one embarrassed me and i felt embarrassed <laughs> yes yes they both simultaneous actually really and uh um no i didn't care for that but there's also so that and 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 i i know that uh i know i recognize these are all people and so i'm not i'm not uh, here and i'm i'm sure you're not I'm not here to besmirch uh, Phelan, Phelan Lentini or anyone else in the book. Not one bit. Nope, I'm not. But I will say that I did sense, and I think that, and of course, the only way I will have sensed this is by reading your words and Ben's words, is that uh, <clears throat> Phelan Lentini, like other baseball dudes, ha- possesses a kind of masculine energy, um, a kind of energy that men will occasionally possess that – I know this goes back to that um, the uh, Pat Oswald quote I was attempting to share, which is like it's. Um, I know that I would be as soon as I felt any 
any brushback. I would, I would just not want to continue. Does that make sense? I would not want to continue our interaction because there's a, uh, there's like a natural sense of, of uh, competition, latent competition always going on. Is that, I mean, I, I recognize I'm not using, um, English entirely right now, mm-hmm. but I'm trying to get to a point awkwardly. Yeah. Right. I think, I think that's right. I, um, <clears throat> I, uh, yeah, I, I generally, uh, I don't know. I, my, it is not my first instinct when, uh, dealing with, uh, either a threat or an imposition to engage. With that, uh, were you? Because uh, I would think it, there's one way out for me in that particular type of situation. Would have been, I, I think that if it was such the project that you're describing, uh, again, I place myself, I insert myself into the narrative as a reader, and and I also imagine myself, you know, because here the main characters are the authors. I would say anything that happens after this, it's almost happening to a different version of me, and so I will. I will experience all these events in the spirit, in that spirit. And I will say, this is not happening to me. This is happening to the version of me, essentially, that is responsible for creating the text that this experience will produce. And so I was wondering if at any point, like in the kangaroo court scene, or you'd be like, well, that didn't really happen to Sam Miller. That happened to a, the version of me that is, that is the character in this book. Or is it difficult to have that sort of, uh, presence to reflect on it in real time like that no i didn't feel that way at all i i might have if it had been in fact i if i had been writing about a two-minute experience then i probably would have been able to keep that uh that that feeling of separation uh like i could probably go into a situation where somebody yells insults at me uh for work uh, and I could probably handle that for two minutes. Not that people were yelling insults at me, by the way. I'm just giving hypothetical. I could probably do that for, for – in fact, I'm, I'm almost certain I could do it for two minutes. Like I could probably hold my breath underwater for two minutes for work if I had to. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean it sounds, like, it sounds to me like you're getting a little bit close to braggadocia. <laughs> but uh, I couldn't do it for four months. And I don't know where the line is, but it's probably like 20 minutes. Uh, I, I absolutely – uh, we, I never really felt like we were writing a book. There were moments where I was anxious because it was clear that the book that we had described in a book proposal was not going to get written. And I worried that, um, that they would be dissatisfied with what we ended up turning in. Um, which didn't happen. Thank, uh, thankfully. Um, well, you, uh, I think that you found the human element. Am I right? Am I not right? No, I, you are right. And I think they, they, they wanted the human element, but we couldn't write the human element in a book proposal. Like, you, how are you going to describe humans that you've never met? So we laid out, like, basically a recipe for how we were going to run a team and write a book. And, um, I don't think they actually wanted that, but we weren't sure and we were worried. Well, I was worried. So there would be moments of anxiety where I would, uh, I would think, oh my gosh, there's still sacrifice bunting. How are we going to write a book about this? But, uh, as far as, um, as far as the personal interactions, uh, I I was never I never desired to nor was I able to separate myself the you know the character from myself the person experiencing it. I really look I really uh, this is a big part of probably why we ended up running the team the way that we did. It's hard to spend three and a half months, four months with people who don't like you. And I didn't want that. I didn't want to do that. I wanted them to like me. I didn't necessarily need them to like me. Uh, the way that I want you to like me. I didn't have to like, you know, convince them that I'm clever or anything like that. But I did want them, you know, to basically think that I was a stand up dude who wasn't going to, uh, you know, bum out the party when I walked in. Um, and, uh, who wasn't going to be, um, you know, like a son of a bitch. And so uh, they didn't want you to salt their game. Yeah, definitely that. And so I, uh, I think that that was a, that was a, to some degree and, and, and a hindrance, uh, to our first half plans. And I think that it was a benefit when it came to the second half and we were, um, 
the the dynamic of the team had changed. A lot of guys had left. A lot, a higher percentage of the guys were ones that we had brought in, and we were a lot more aggressive about changing the way that they were playing. Um, and uh, so, I ultimately, I feel like it was probably the right decision to uh, to try not to um, to well to not totally sacrifice the relationship that we had with them, as you know some. Some execs might, or is certainly we heard about indie ball managers who do, who just are despised and are, uh, it doesn't matter because, um, they have the upper hand. People want to play baseball. Uh, we, we could have gone that way. Um, but I, I just don't have the, I don't have the spirit to be around people who hate me. Oh, it's so difficult. I know. Cause I, like I'm married, for example. Yeah. So caught that. Yeah. Yeah. I like hey, you, live, you know, can what? I I I just want to I don't know if it's awkward to hear it read aloud but mm-hmm. um uh by the way I have I have your book did you know that uh which one the uh your little collection of uh, the enthusiast uh oh the ejaculations yes exactly mm-hmm. uh I uh yeah I that was awkward to open on Christmas morning in front of my parents um wait um did your parents give it to you no my my wife did Uh, that's very sweet what is the one though about uh that you say about how what it is about you and your wife and it is something about how Oh, yeah. when you make love to her, you want her to feel like <laughs> what is it? What is that? How does that go? Yeah, it was something like uh yeah, I don't know what the title is, something like on uh like, you know. Oh, oh, I know, I know. I know. I got it. I got it. I got it. Here, here we go. Hang on. Hang on. I I I've googled it and said, okay. Uh, and now why is it? Ah, hang on. I want to get this. So fin- you can finish it because Google's only showing me the the the, the be- when I make love to a woman I try to make her feel like she's the only girl in in the room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that's it. That's the whole joke. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yes, because then. <laughs> yeah, that's a. Uh... Yeah. <clears throat> That's a joke. <laughs> you know what I just got in the mail a couple days ago was uh, Patrick Dubuque's book. Have you read that? Oh no, I haven't. Little Patrick. I've been wondering I, what the. Uh, I don't know the story of it. Like I don't know if I got a book that is like I saw him tweet like. By the way, you can buy my book. So I was like, yes, absolutely, I, I can and I will. And I don't mm-hmm. know if that was like a. Oh, I, I released this six years ago, and uh, I just remembered, uh, or if it's a new book. But it's wonderful. It's really uh, yeah, just a my complete sense is, pleasure uh, to read. Just like it really, 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 really enjoyable. He uh, – right. And I actually uh, – my guess is that Patrick – what I know of him, um, uh, he would not be particularly good at self-promotion. Does that make sense? It does. He's uh, – his, his confidence in himself is, is, is limited – um, he has a bit, uh, at least the times I've been able to spend time with, a bit of the, uh, the Eeyore archetype about him. Mm. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. But a delightful, a delightful man and also a good, uh, great writer. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I enjoy it. But what, what, tell me about his book. Cause I, I've received zero emails about it. And my guess is if I haven't been on, uh, twitter.com at the same time as him. Um, well, it is, uh, it is essays about baseball and philosophy, more or less. Sure. Yeah. I'm on board. Uh, and they're, uh, they're, they're very, they're, they're generally quite bite-sized. Um, and, uh, and, and just beautiful and touching. Oh, actually, yes. Uh, and also it appears as though Dubuque is aware of his own, uh, his own conduct. His, uh. The tweet that's at the very top of his feed, uh, in, in that he says, they say it only takes 17 muscles to smile, but 41 of them to frown. That's why my face is so much stronger than yours. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I, uh, interact with, so I, um, 
I just had this conversation with somebody not long ago, but I mean, at some point, um, at some point, Gmail as like a entity is going to get, is going to get hacked, right? At some point, like we all know that, right? Mm, sure. Yeah. And we all live in fear of it and we wake up and we go, today's the day I'm going to stop saying things that I, I wouldn't want the world to see me say. Uh, and then we, we fail, uh, to do that. But I also know a lot of people who have a, you know, a public image as baseball writers that is, um, uh, I don't know, like different than the one that is clear if you interact with them regularly on Gchat. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't mean to say this about Patrick because I, I love the Eeyore, uh, archetype and I admire it greatly and I admire somebody who is, um, who is confident in that. But just in general, I, I feel like the, the great Gmail hack to some degree will be great because we will, uh, see how, um, how much more complex the people that we have, uh, you know, boiled down to one, one word, the, mm-hmm. the blank archetype, uh, how much more complex they are and how interesting they are and how, um, much, uh, nuance their, their personality and mood and spirit and everything have. Yeah, I suppose that because Patrick, you know Patrick, right? I mean, you you interact with him regularly. Yeah. And, you know, when you were when when not yeah, graphs was a thing, you would have probably talked to him almost every day uh, electronically. No, I was not a good editor, so no. But yes, in in theory, well, yeah, and you would, um, but you wouldn't from that. You would not describe him as any archetype. You would say he is a. Well, a, he's a person. He's, he's, a, he's a person. He's a person. Yeah. Yeah, Great. he's a person. He's a person. I think who's opinion of himself is not always particularly high but i also those are my favorite type of people especially if they have talent which exceeds their own sense of themselves yeah i but look, i also but he, I, I think he what? what you're saying he's not that talented that's what i hear you saying no i think that he uh my guess is that he he fears the next thing he writes will not be that good but I think that you don't publish things that you don't think are are good or worthwhile. You don't edit the Baseball Prospectus Annual if you don't think that it's worthwhile, that your contribution is worthwhile. I think that probably Patrick, like many of us, has a great fear of uncertainty of what is to come and has a maybe a fear that um, the next thing he writes is when uh, when it all falls apart. But he published a book – like that's a pretty cocky thing to do. Yeah. Like he read those things and went, "The whole world should pay me for this." No, oh, I'm sure he did not anticipate the whole world doing it. Well, I think he's anybody who wants to read it has to give him money. <laughs> um, I don't. Yeah. I, well, that's a good point. You say, well, you're publishing a book, you're writing something, and you're submitting it uh, to the public. Why would you do that unless you had a great deal of confidence in the in this in the substance of it? Exactly. Either that, or you're a hack who needs money. And he's obviously, um, you know, he's not that. Like I think there's a. I all right. First of all, I think that your your version of events as you're presenting it, I think it's true. Um, so you've, you described two possibilities, right? There's either someone who, who has, has a great deal of confidence in what they're submitting, and there's also someone who's a hack. I think there's other versions of this, though. I think there's a lot of other versions of this. And I think one of them is, one of them is, you don't necessarily anticipate, or you don't actually care how many people read it, but you would like certain people to read it. You don't necessarily know who all those certain people are. You yeah. probably have some, there's oh, some yeah. of them in your head. Definitely. You would like because I know that my guess is this is how Patrick read book. I could be wrong. I, this is how I read books. Is I like to read a book, and uh, not I really like not to read many books, but maybe like um, you know certain authors over and over, so that uh, you feel as though you are uh, that there is a there is a uh, relationship being formed, right? And you feel when when this person's talking or you know writing whatever they're articulating, you feel like it's articulating something inside of you. So maybe he says, "Well, maybe I can help. I can create this experience with someone else." And so he sends something out, 
he doesn't need people to like it necessarily. He just needs, he doesn't need a lot of people to like it. He just needs a few people to like it a lot. There's a lot of speculation about Patrick Dubuque. Yeah. But, uh, most of it, most of it these days, you know, most of his things we do is just pure speculation. Yeah. Stupid. What do you, what is your daily, what is your daily situation now? Are you, are you, uh, you spend your day being the boss of baseball prospectus? Uh, yeah. That's what I do. Okay. Um, my, my day and my night, if you want to get personal. I do, yeah, I do want to get personal. That's the ambition there. That's uh, what they always say about me. BP editor in chief on the mm-hmm. streets, BP editor in chief in the sheets. <laughs> <laughs> what do you, uh, how does it, what does that mean? Are uh, you, are you, do you copy edit it? Yeah. You copy edit? Yeah, not everything. Um, we have, I have, uh, great editors that are, uh, there with me. So, um, uh, Craig Goldstein and Dan Rathman, uh, and Aaron Gleeman also all, uh, copy edit or general edit, line edit, do all sorts of editing. Uh, editing, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't really know, again, uh, how, what, what would interest you and I would like to interest you, but, mm-hmm. uh, somebody says, Hey Sam, I'm working on this. And I say, that sounds great. Yeah. And, and then, uh, they submit it and I usually say that is great. And I, um, uh, fix all their hyphens because while I have a tremendous staff of tremendous writers, they are the worst hyphenators in the world. <laughs> They're just... All are you talking about if you have a um, – you're talking about like a noun phrase? I'm talking about wherever a hyphen goes, there isn't one, and wherever a hyphen doesn't, there is. Yeah. Um, and so I just uh, – to save time, sometimes I'll just uh, replace all spaces with hyphens and all yeah, hyphens no, with it. spaces. Yeah, you use that control F. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but otherwise, it's a it's a – it's a fairly easy job. Um, it, uh, sometimes a piece comes in and you say, um, well, this is entirely wrong. Let's try again. But that's not very common. What? Uh, how many pieces do you guys publish a day typically? Uh, probably a, – it depends what you count as a piece. Uh, mm-hmm. Probably a dozen um, that include some furniture. So that would include like the minor league update, which comes every day and – um, like, uh, some fantasy pieces that are pretty much on the schedule. Uh, and then maybe a half a dozen pieces that are sort of unique to that moment. You wake up, well, you live on the West Coast, so you have to, um, you have to be, you have to be up early, I would assume. That's all at night. We put, we set it all up at night. Oh, you do? Yeah. For the next day? Yeah. It's all ready to go. Yep. BP goes live at 3 a.m. West Coast time. 3 a.m. West Coast. That's 6, uh, 6 a.m. East Coast time. Mm-hmm. What, what do you mean it goes live? Every piece, the same time? Yeah. We um, – I mean we're subscription, you know? And so we don't – like Google hates us We because we're – some of our pieces are behind a paywall. And also um, BP's tradition has always basically been to have the daily content, which is, a, you know, kind of archaic and probably dumb. Probably – probably dumb probably i should not do that and in fact i've had conversations with the people who um who put money into this company who have asked me why do we still do that and i explained that um the subscribers uh i i that i feel like it uh it is in keeping with what people subscribe to to look at baseball prospectus as a daily magazine and not as a uh you know streaming news content site uh, and so there are updates as the day goes on. So if a, you know, piece comes in that's timely, we put it up right away and some things come in later. Um, so it, there's a, a, a little bit of stagger and we've, um, we've worked on having a, a little bit more of that. But for the most part, we look at it as a daily magazine, a daily online magazine that you can uh, open up the site at 8 a.m. wherever you are, uh, see everything that's there, choose what you're going to read, uh, print it out for lunch and, uh, Actually, now that I think about it, some part of this might just be that my experience as a baseball prospectus reader, as a extremely passionate and devoted baseball prospectus reader back when I was still writing about autism, was that I would come in at 
nine, like eight forty in the morning, and my editor would come in at nine, and so I'd basically have twenty minutes to abuse the printer, and I would just go online and print out every BP article, uh, hide them. Uh, and then, uh, at either lunch or during, uh, my coffee breaks, I would take them with me and read BP articles throughout the day. Uh, and it was, um, you know, just feeling like that was the day. That was the day's content. Uh, so we, uh, do it that way. And if we didn't have any paywall at all, my guess is that we wouldn't, we would be a lot more aggressive about uh, being, um, timely and search engine optimized. But if you really look at what we do, it's usually next day stuff. It's more of like the day after analysis or even, you know, the evergreen uh, kind of thing where you're like, huh, I wonder why catcher's interferences, uh, you know, only happen on Tuesdays or whatever, uh, where it doesn't matter whether it comes in at, whether it goes up at 4.30 in the afternoon or the next morning. So it might as well make it the next morning and have it be an event. Let me ask you this question. Wait, you, let me you, ask you this question. Hmm. Have you been silently judging me this whole time and thinking, this guy, he is stuck in the 20th century? <laughs> I don't think I would do that. <laughs> I don't really care what century you're in. Good. All right. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, I, still, I still get DVDs from the library. Yeah. We do too. <laughs> that's, how yeah. we, that's how we watch most movies. We get DVDs yeah. from the library. Yeah, have you have you tried Foil's War? No. Okay. That's well, a, that a movie. Foil's War is a BBC series, Ooh. starring Michael Kitchen as a detective chief superintendent Christopher Foyle, um, who's working as a detective during World War II in England. So you have uh, death. He has death all around him. Is he constantly looking up from some clue and being like, Hitler did this? <laughs> no, well, no. But what does happen with some frequency is someone who is involved with one of the British armed forces will commit a crime, and then, but then you have to say, well, it, this person should probably be, uh, you know, arrested, etc. But at the same time, what will his absence do? What will it do to the war? So some he has to he has to balance some of these considerations. Right, absolutely. You yeah, it's not worth. Uh, yeah, no, I get. So, it. I hey, get that. I'm now I'm going to ask you a question. You relocated at some point within the last five years, I gather, to San Francisco. Is that right? Eh, Bay Area, Bay Area. It's outdated. What do you mean? Well, we relocated. That information. And, we relocated and then we have since reverted. We are back in our original, original Long Beach home. Oh, you're back in Long Beach. Yeah, we moved back a month ago. Now, what were you doing? Was that for the book or was that just what? What were we doing there? That was for my wife's job. So we uh, we left three years ago with the plan of being up there for two years and then coming back. Uh, and the book uh, required one extra year. But uh, we have since returned for good. And did you uh, – what do you – what do you have, a home? You have a little home? We do. You buy you, – it's yours? You own the home? We do. How – Yeah. Homeownership, right? Is that you too? Yeah, I bought, yeah, You're we in recently. Now. Yeah. You and I are roughly as far apart as you can be in the contiguous 48. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, yeah, well, do you guys have ants? No, we don't really have any insect problems. So we have, uh, we have, not we like, like me specifically, not like, it, we're not like your friend Rob, we're not special. We, the entire state of California roughly, and in yeah. fact, much of the world uh, live in the Argentine ant super colony. Are you you're, oh. you know about the Argentine ants? I'm sure that I is it possible that I heard a radio lab about the Argentine you ants? You did, you did. Okay, so the Argentine ants uh, they're 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 bad. They're, well, they're the greatest species that ever lived on Earth. They in terms of being able to continue itself. Yeah, they they the Argentine ant colony that um, surrounds our house. Uh, it stretches from, uh, Vancouver to Baja, <laughs> California, <laughs> in Mexico. It's one colony. So we lay out, uh, bait traps sometimes and then we think, well, we're probably not going to kill it. <laughs> and so we are just constantly surrounded by ants as everybody around here is. And that to me is more than anything else home ownership. 
uh, you are constantly surrounded by ants. And, well, so what is, and there's, how do they affect your life? Well, that's the thing. They don't. But you're yeah. constantly surrounded by ants. They're not in our house. We're, we, we keep a clean house. Every once in a while, they decide they're going to give it a shot. Uh, we spray them with all purpose. Uh, we keep the counters clean and then they disappear. One time, uh, the big breakthrough for us house-wise, we, we did have about a year where, uh, they were fairly persistent in the house and I went to go fix, uh, uh, some some plumbing in my shower and when i opened it up i found a a giant nest of argentine ants with uh you know hundreds of queens this is the other thing that makes argentine ants yeah. so powerful millions of queens and uh and so i walked over to the kitchen got some raid sprayed them and we haven't really had a problem inside ever since uh but they're always there and i think that's the thing is that you it is great you have a house like you have a house like it's an amazing thing to walk in and say uh i have a house uh, i have i have 3% of a house on the other hand you know what you know what can happen to that house it it can burn down it can get robbed somebody can trip on your uh, porch step and sue you for a billion dollars it can get mauled and that is the experience of having argentine ants constantly around you not bothering you but looking at you <laughs> there are so, so many ants around here like it's really unbelievable they're just like they're outside but we have a garden and every plant in the garden the root system of it is an ant is an anthill basically so how does it are you able to still grow things in the garden they don't bother anything carson they're just dumb little ants they're not they, they're not ants that bite they don't care about us. They care about wiping out every other ant in the universe, but they don't care about us. They're perfectly peaceful, uh, and all they want is a little water and a little sap. But they're there waiting. They're just really good. They're good at propagating. Yeah, and if they ever and if they ever do decide to move in, we'll never get rid of them. And so that's why that's why they're scary. If they if they learn how to if they organized. In a, in a purposeful way. No, they're organized. It's more if they decided that inside was better for them. I don't think they think inside is better for them right now. But if they ever decided that inside was looking good. Mm-hmm. Also, oh we live God. under a flight path. you hear this plane? Yeah, I do. Yeah. It's not bad. It sounds worse on a podcast. Do you ever have fantasies of witnessing a a plane crash? No. No. I wait fan, fantasies. Uh, you mean I'm not saying I'm not saying <laughs> I'm not saying. <laughs> okay, I'm not let's saying. Re- you find yourself yeah, let's aroused, try it again. <laughs> at the prospect of it, I'm saying it it occurs in your head. Yeah, and you say. Uh, I I did. Uh, we lived directly under a flight path uh, at 9/11, like to the point where like this thing would fly about 200 feet above our house, and uh, and. Then I did. Uh, and also uh, shortly after I spent a month in Manhattan and also then I did because you really do see like how easy it – like not how easy but how just like – I have a, Andrew Parker who was our catcher uh, on the Stompers one time asked me uh, if I'm ever nervous about the guy driving in the opposite direction on the road and i said no and he said isn't that crazy like they're they're just driving like three feet from you a series of strangers driving like these one ton missiles and you just uh you don't think about it because if you did you'd never drive again you'd never get out of bed and uh there was definitely a uh feeling watching planes fly over manhattan where you think every one of these is really terrifying uh but then that went away the, um, what the one thing that makes me less afraid, even having considered this prospect of the people driving the opposite direction, is that you have to assume that for them to be driving right now, that they've successfully completed, you know, hundreds of other thousands of other similar trips. But um, they might decide that they don't want to end this trip. They might, you know, they might be crazy. They might, the, the, they might, the they might, they might lose consciousness. Otherwise That's healthy true. people suddenly go unconscious. That's true. Uh, they might have a mistake. They might look over their shoulder. They might be reaching for a CD.
I, uh, a friend of my wife's who lives in Michigan, actually, uh, she was driving on a road and someone on the other side started driving right at her on purpose. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that person got a license. So I'm not sure that she was, uh, she was not a stable person. What happened is, uh, she only was able to hit the tail end of my wife's friend's car. She get, then this woman, she like crashed into the woods that was by the side of the road. She got out of her car and she ran into the woods. Yeah. So my, you say, well, this person is driven successfully, whatever. But, um, my response to that is that I am not as worried about the other person as I am about myself being that person. Like I, I definitely worry that I'm going to suddenly, uh, lose control of myself. I mean, you, are you one of the, People who, uh, if you're at the top of a tall, tall building or on a cliff, you worry that you're suddenly going to jump off, like not fall. Oh off. yeah, yeah, yeah sure, not yeah. fall. I, off, I know what but, you're but, but jump I mean, off. all of the yes, but all, I would say that I equally, I entertain equally all of the possible disasters, including essentially what you're suggesting, which is to lose control of my own. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I feel that way about yeah. about my own driving, and so. Have you ever been to like the CN Tower, for example? What is in Toronto? No, I haven't. I've never been to Toronto. They have a, uh, I think it's, well, at least at a certain point. When I visited like 20 years ago now, it was the tallest man-made structure either in North America or perhaps the world. I don't think it is. I'm sure, I'm sure it no longer is. Um, but there was, it's, it's, it's it's essentially like a space needle, like in Seattle, but on the observation deck, part of the floor had been cut out and replaced by like six feet of plexiglass. So you could walk over it and you'd just be looking down however many thousands of feet. Thousands? Hundreds? Thousands? I don't know. I don't really care. Mm. But uh, it uh, would have that sensation where, I don't know if this is, um, I don't know if this is polite to say aloud, but uh, my sphincter would contract. Sam, yeah. that's what would happen. Uh-huh. I believe that's an involuntary response to heights. It's odd too because you're okay? yeah you're a thousand feet up. Do you think you would have had the same reaction if you'd been forty feet up? No. Even though your likelihood of death is roughly equal. No, you're exactly right. I think it must have something to do with perspective. You're not you're not accustomed. You you. I think it's easy enough. Like if you go to like a three story building, you see things from forty feet up, right? But if you are but this is this is a perspective unlike those you've normally seen. Yes. And you know that it will murder you. Yeah. And also I'm unlikely to jump from a 40-foot building because I've been on a lot of them, but I've I very rarely have been on a 1000-foot building and I don't know how I'll react. Yeah. Any guesses as to how tall the CN Tower is? Yeah. I have a guess. Okay, go. Um 965 feet. No, it's fifteen hundred. So it was oh, thousands, or thousand and more. Wow, thousand more. Yeah. Hey, listen, we've reached the hour mark, which means that um, you've fulfilled whatever obligation you had or didn't have to this program. Okay. Is that okay? Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. So what I'll do is I'm gonna do a couple a couple things. I'm gonna thank you for appearing. You're going to accept um, my thanks, and then I'll say that has been Sam Miller. What? Uh, I guess editor-in-chief, baseball prospectus, author of The Only Rules It Has to Work. I'm Carson Stooley. That's what's going to happen. Sounds good. Fair enough? Yeah, that sounds good. So uh, so I want to thank you, Sam Miller. I want to thank you, Carson. Okay. That is uh, Sam Miller. is editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus and also author with Ben Lindbergh of The Only Rules It Has to Work. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. I got to go, Carson. 